All right, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16 this morning. Finish the chapter. If you want to make your way there. We're going to cover verses 11 through 40. There's actually many good points in this passage. I've, I've enjoyed studying this passage this week. They're not difficult points, but they're, uh, they have the potential to transform a life. That makes sense. They're not hard to see. They're truths we're familiar with, more than likely. But uh, it's, it's a great passage. If you remember last week, we covered up to uh, 1610, which is Paul's and his team's vision of the man in Macedonia telling them, come over here and help us. They had, if you, if you remember, they wanted to go visit the original churches they founded on their first missionary journey. The Lord shut that door, so then they wanted to head north up to Bithynia, and God shut that door. And so they made their way down to the port city of Troas, and were somewhat landlocked at that point, and that's where the vision came, to go cross the sea and go to Europe. It was something that Paul had probably dreamed of, but never thought would come to fruition, knowing his heart. And as he stood on that shore at Troas, looking at the vast Roman Empire, I'm sure his heart left just for the opportunity now that lay before him as he crossed the sea and made his way. So let's begin reading in, in 1611. After they concluded that the Lord was calling them to preach in Macedonia, they set sail from Troas and made a direct voyage to Samothrace and then following the next day to Neapolis. And from there they went to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and it's a Roman colony. Luke says they remained in that city some days. A little background on Philippi real quick. Luke tells us that it was a leading city of Macedonia. There's two ways you can understand it in the Greek. The language isn't real clear. Leading meaning in the sense of culturally or economically, or leading in the sense of one of the first cities they came across. And it's hard to know what Luke means. Some people think Luke might have actually been here and was giving somewhat of a preference to the city, but it wasn't by any means the most influential of the cities in Macedonia. Um, Corinth was, definitely, and then Athens. Ephesus, where Paul would also go on, all this, on this second trip. He'd visit all those cities. Those cities were all more influential economically, socially, culturally than, than Philippi. That's not to diminish the influence of Philippi, though. As far as being one of the first cities they'd come across, it was that. In fact, the Roman road, if you've studied Roman history, the great Roman road called the Ignatian Way, um, it was one of the famous aspects of Rome, is, is their roads that connected the empire, their vast empire. The Ignatian Way terminated at Philippi, so it was a leading city in that sense. It was an important city in that sense. The city itself was a Roman colony, meaning after it uh, was won in battle, it was named after Philip II of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. No uh, small person there. And it was a Roman colony, I said this, sorry. Uh, Rome, what they would do is, is pay, uh, soldiers or patriots who had retired from the military would be sent out to the frontiers of the empire to establish Roman cities. And in return for them leaving Rome and all their property, all the all the advantages that Rome gave them, they would be given freedom to not pay taxes, freedom to own their land, freedom to self-govern their city. There's a lot of 
um, blessing from the Roman Empire if you went and established a colony. And so not every city that was owned or controlled by Rome had the privilege of being a colony. They were given special privileges. So Philippi, in that sense, was a very privileged city of the Roman Empire. It was also a very influential one in that sense. Uh, leading people from Rome. It would have looked much like Rome because the way that they would govern, those men who established the city came directly from Rome, and so their government would mirror that of the mother city. And we're told, as they get to Philippi, they visited or went through at least three other cities, or two other cities, Samothrace and Neapolis, but they didn't stop there. They made their way straight to Philippi, and in verse 13... It says, on the Sabbath day, we went outside of the gate, that is the city gate, to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, her and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she prevailed upon us. Paul, evidently, as we've seen in Acts, his pattern was to go into a city and first find the Jewish synagogue, and he'd always present the gospel to them. Philippi either had uh, very few Jews or no practicing Jews in the city because he couldn't. We're not told there's a synagogue there. He actually had to go outside the city gates and go to a place of prayer, which was a practice of Jews uh, that, that became somewhat of a habit during their deportation when they were in Babylon and all these foreign countries. Where they would go is they'd go down to the river or lakeside, and that's where they congregate, that's where they pray and worship. What's kind of sad is that for a synagogue to exist in any city, there had to be two or ten, sorry, males who were the heads of their own household. Only ten. Ten Jewish males who were the heads of a household, meaning they had a family, would be enough to establish a synagogue. So there wasn't even ten practicing Jews or present Jews who were males enough to establish a synagogue. In fact, we're not told that there were any males here at all. Paul goes out to the place of prayer and encounters only a group of women. The first one we're told, the only one we're told of, was a woman named Lydia. Lydia was from Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods. If you remember, Thyatira was one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation that the Lord addresses. She was a worshiper of God, we're told. One who feared God. If you remember, that same title was used of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, back in Acts 10. It doesn't necessarily mean they're a believer yet, but they were a Gentile who feared God. Maybe they hadn't fully converted to Judaism, meaning they hadn't accepted circumcision or the Jewish custom or whatever, but they still feared the God of the Jews and worshipped Him as a Gentile. So we don't know if Lydia was Jewish or if she was Greek necessarily. She could have been a mixture, somewhat like Timothy. But nonetheless, she was there praying, demonstrating her devotion to worship. And in the passage, Luke uses a very uh, peculiar, uh, to some maybe, phrase. 
As Paul began to speak to him in verse 14, Luke says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple goods. She was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Many debate as far as the extent of what this means. This is really a beautiful passage. The reality of sinful men, even God-fearing people who aren't born again yet, is that we must have the Lord prevail on our hearts, move upon our hearts in some kind of gracious, powerful way to respond to Him. Now, I, I don't... There's theological positions that, that take that to say uh, man has no response whatsoever. It's all of the Lord in that way. Um, I don't take that extreme of a position, but I do see that we can't even come to God in the Scriptures. Paul says in Romans 3.10 that no one seeks the Lord, not even one. In fact, in John 6, Jesus said, unless the Father were to draw you, you wouldn't come after me. And so we see this picture here in Lydia. This is so beautiful. No doubt she feared the Lord. And what's the Lord do? He moves on her. He draws her. He opens her heart, the scripture says, to respond. But notice, the response is hers. Every person, if you want to know the truth, God will move upon you so that you can respond to the truth. I believe that's what the scripture teaches. We can't just decide one day we're going to do it. We must have the Spirit's help to do it. Now that might frighten some people. It shouldn't. It shouldn't frighten you. It should encourage you. You don't have the strength. You don't have the will. You don't have the mind to just, boom, I'm going to come to God today. Sorry. That's not how salvation works. However, if from your heart you're saying, Lord, I would have you, guess what he'll do? He'll open your heart so that you can respond in faith. That's how it works. And we see passage after passage affirming that symbiotic relationship of God moving first upon people, and in response, people come to faith. They believe. If you remember John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, he says this, To all who would receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. He doesn't say to all who would choose him, None of us would. But he chose us. He gives us grace to respond back with faith. And that's what Lydia does. It's a beautiful picture of what salvation really is. Now this is such a beautiful picture. Most commentators camp out on Lydia. I'm not going to. There's some other points in this passage I want to focus on. But Lydia, it's so important to notice this. There's, in, in academic circles and even cultural circles, many people downplay or uh, denigrate um, what Paul believed about women. They say he was harsh, he was uh, chauvinistic, male chauvinist or whatever. He was not so. Here's a group of women. In fact, one of the uh, rabbinic prayers that Paul would no doubt have recited when he was a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, was this, and this is going to be offensive to some of you. He would pray, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like the Gentiles, I'm glad I'm not like the sinners, and I'm glad I'm not a woman. That was the Jewish and cultural prevailing view of women. Look at how different Paul is now. He no doubt sat down with them, shared the gospel, and guess what? Lydia became the first member 
of the church at Philippi. In fact, most people believe she was a wealthy woman. She was a seller of purple goods, which was, was a clothing that would go to a kingly or royal or wealthy individual. So this woman was a very wealthy woman. Most people believe that the church at Philippi was actually congregated in her home. She had a large home. She no doubt housed her whole family, her servants, and she at the end of this account offers to house Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy. And not only that, we'll see here in a, later, in a little bit, there's a church at Philippi after Paul left there that continued to provide financially for Paul's ministry. And Paul would actually say they're the only one who did so. I can assume that much of that financial provision came from this very wealthy woman. That does not at all speak about a male chauvinistic attitude toward women. This woman was honored in the church, and God honored her by demonstrating the first convert of Europe was a female. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? We'll go on, though. So, Paul and his team stays with Lydia in their household as they stayed in Philippi for many days. In verse 16, they were going at some point in their stay, they're going back to the place of prayer, to the river where he originally met Lydia. And we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. And she brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. The demon-possessed girl, this is such an interesting account, so applicable to us today. Literally, um, it reads, she had a Pythonian spirit. Now, if you were to read that, if they translated that literally into the English, you'd have no idea what they're talking about. What's a Pythonian spirit? So, word for python makes it even stranger. A python spirit. What it's referring to is the oracle at Delphi was housed at, at Philippi. And the oracle at Delphi was guarded, according to Greek mythology, by a gigantic python. The oracle at Delphi was, was supposedly the mouthpiece for the Greek gods to the people. Well, the Greek god Apollo, according to Greek mythology, came down, slayed the python, and now he spoke to the people through the oracle. But the, the phrase, uh, the Pythonian spirit, came to mean uh, this person who's, who has this python spirit is speaking for the gods. It was a very common phrase to them, and so Luke uses it knowing it's a common phrase because he's directly challenging the Greek deities and idols in their culture. It doesn't mean much to us, it meant a ton to them. This girl spoke for the God, she had the python spirit. It was almost a, a, a phrase of honor to the Greeks, not to the Christian. She had a python spirit, a pythonian spirit. What's interesting is she was possessed by a, a wicked spirit. Um, Paul would tell the church at Corinth, those who sacrifice and, and uh, speak with these kind of spirits actually do it to demons, okay? But as a strategy, as a satanic strategy, this demon was proclaiming the truth through this girl. Did you guys catch that? 
Listen to what she said. She followed Paul and and the team around for many days. And here's what they said. These men are servants of the Most High God. That's true. In fact, that phrase, Most High God, was a very common title in the Old Testament for the God who owned everything, who is over everything. Why would this demon, who's supposed to be speaking for Apollo, be saying these men are servants of the Most High God? And later, after that, she says, they proclaim to you the way of salvation. It seems a strange strategy from Satan to proclaim the truth through one of these servants. Real quick, I want to read, you have it as a reference there, 2 Corinthians 11, 12 to 14. I have it written in my notes. You can turn there if you want. But I want to remind you that Paul's in Philippi. From Philippi, he would later eventually make his way down to Corinth, whom he wrote this letter to. And I actually think verse 14 of the passage I'm going to reference, Paul probably had this account in mind when he wrote verse 14. So keep that in mind as I read it. Here's what he said. 2 Corinthians 11, 12 to 14. He said, What I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim in their boasted mission that they work on the same terms as we do. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So he's identifying their workmen, there's apostles, there's teachers who are false that claim to be apostles of Jesus. They are not. They're workers, deceitful workmen. But here's what he says in verse 14. And no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. You see why I think Paul had this account in mind as he wrote that to Corinth? This demon-possessed girl is disguising herself as an angel of light, proclaiming the truth. Now think about this as a strategy. How much damage has been done in church history and is still being done today by angels or demons who appear to be angels of light, by workers who appear to be apostles of Christ. When the enemy can infiltrate the ranks and appear to be one of you, there can be endless damage. Any military member here will understand that. What if if, uh, Al-Qaeda or someone posed as a military serviceman Just look at what's happening on our foreign bases. How do they get in on the base and attack our our soldiers? They dress up like one of the soldiers. And then they kill a bunch of ours. That's what Satan's doing here. Because if he can infiltrate by saying some truth, you know what he'll do later? He'll start sowing discord and untruths amongst the body, having gained credibility through these statements. Paul said this in the end of his life to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. He said, Beware, the time is coming when when men and women will heap up teachers who will simply teach what they want to hear. They'll abandon the truth. They'll turn aside to myths, he said. This is so crafty on the part of our enemy. This is so crafty. There's such an important application here for us. This girl was clearly a demoniac, and yet she was saying the truth. What's the application? Well, just because one says the right things does not mean they have the same spirit within them. That is so difficult for us sometimes, isn't it? Well, they said the right things. They say all the right answers. 
Yes, but in this case, she was clearly not of God. What's going on? Well, we must test not only what people say, but who they are. And that's where we struggle. We don't like always to have our profession matched up with our life. Now, I'm not here to say all of us are peachy keen and, and spotless. We're going to have sin. But John makes it clear, when this is just who you are, you just live in sin, and yet you can say all the right things, you're clearly not of the Lord. Let me read a couple verses to you. Paul said this to the Corinthian church also, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. He said this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you were to fail the test? See, that church had persisted for so long, questioning the truth, questioning his authority as an apostle, continuing to live in sin. He finally got to the point where he said, you need to test yourself to see if you're really in Christ. I have some doubts. Church, this is one of the best things you can do. Examine yourself. How does my life match up with what I profess to believe? Because if there's a serious defect there, there might be a problem. Paul said this in Ephesians 5. He said, verse 5 and 6, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, and he actually just got done saying a lot of other stuff, one who is covetous, that is an idolater, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, what did he point to? He pointed to their lifestyle. Right? He says, this is how they're living. They have no inheritance. And he says, following up, he says, let no one deceive you with empty professions. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul would admonish churches all the time, test the truth. Test truth claims. Test truth claims. Right? If someone denies that Jesus is the Christ, obviously they're not of the Lord. He was always about testing doctrines, but he was also always about testing the lifestyle of people. Because you can know right doctrine and live like a child of hell. And that's the disconnect. I, I believe that's in America so much. In churches. People can walk out of church, live however they want to live, and then come back in and say all the right things in their presence of their Christian friends. That's self-deceived. This is such a powerful passage demonstrating that. Satan, when he tempted Jesus, quoted scripture to him. The gospel and the economy. Let's move on to this next point. This is interesting. So, Paul rebukes this demon. Notice he doesn't rebuke the girl, the slave girl. It's an interesting point. She was a victim there. Now, I don't know, I don't want to get into this. I had a slide detailing all this. I deleted it, but I don't know if demon possession is always willful on the one who's possessed, if they invited somehow through their behavior that demon to possess them, or if they're truly victimized. I don't know. I don't think there's enough in Scripture to truly say, but she was being victimized by the demon and also by her owners, right? She was being used. And in this case, Paul rebuked the demon, not the girl. And the demon came out of her. The response, verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. 
And when they brought them into the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted, inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. So having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now welcome to Europe. Probably not what Paul expected on his European vacation, huh? He lands in Philippi, and he finds himself in a jail. I don't think the Lord had shown him that this is the path Paul would take. But this is where this passage gets beautiful to me. And I hope I can communicate this. But first, I want you to notice, these, the slave owners of this girl became wealthy off this, this slave girl's affliction. And when their hope of gain was gone, verse 19, what, what happened to them? They turned on Paul and Silas. There's something about the gospel that not only um, changes the individual, but it changes the society and culture as well. That's what we were just saying. When the gospel comes into uh, when you come into faith in the gospel and Christ comes to live in you, you're different. And it means this, that, that what you do outside is different. How you practice business is not the way the world practices business. The gospel changes the culture for good. For good. These men who are making money in a wicked way lost it. I wrote in my notes here, when righteousness dispossesses wickedness, the economy is interrupted. Think of pimps who hire out women to prostitute themselves, and those prostitutes come to faith in Christ and stop that activity. Do you think the pimps are happy about it? Not at all. But it changes the economy. Those who profit from wicked things become enraged. And I wrote last there, perhaps the quickest way to invite persecution is to mess with people's checkbook. Right? We love our money and we love our security. I don't really want you to know how I'm making this money, but when the gospel says that's an unrighteous method or that's unrighteous gain, boy, you see people flare up and get angry. Because now their hearts are exposed. <clears throat> Righteousness and holiness are not just attributes that are to be demonstrated while here at church. They're to invade every dimension of our society. It's not right for us to simply isolate our Christian life from our professional or business life. In our professional life, we're Christians. In our business life, we're Christians. In our home life, we're Christians. In our church life, we're Christians. That's who we are. They're not mutually exclusive. Paul would say this, we are to do all things to the glory of God. That highlights the power of the gospel. Everything you do should be for his sake. I read a story in, in studying for this week 
um, of a man, this is you know, back in the 19, 1800s, a man and his family were rescued by this poor beggar. Um, they were sleeping in their house, and their house caught on fire, and they didn't know it. And this poor beggar happened to be passing by the house, saw it on fire, and he rushes into the home. This is before door locks and everything. Don't you long for those days. <laughs> he rushes into the home, wakes the family up, and starts grabbing the children and rushing them outside. And in the process, he nearly died. And it took him months and months and months to be rehabilitated back to health. Well, this family was so touched that this man nearly sacrificed everything he had in order to save them. They were a family of prominence as well. That they actually started taking the whole, his whole family's needs on themselves. Providing for his wife, his children, uh, this, this rich man's kids. Providing for the poor man's kids at school, befriending them. Doing everything they could for as long as it takes. They wanted to give. Why? Because that man almost gave it all for them. And what happened was, through this whole process, this beautiful account, this family came to see the higher level of living is found in giving, not in receiving. And that just became their habit of life. I want to read this quote from William Temple because this is going to go into our application of this point. William Temple said, To risk money... Haphazard is to disregard the insistence of the church in every age of living faith that possessions are a trust and that men must account to God for their use. The persistent appeal to covetousness is fundamentally opposed to the unselfishness which was taught by Jesus and the New Testament as a whole. And he concludes this, the attempt to make a profit out of the inevitable loss and possible suffering of others is the antithesis of that love of one's neighbor on which our Lord insisted. Now that applies directly to our passage, right? These men, the owners of the slave girl, were getting rich off of her suffering. Contrary to the love of Christ. If you love your neighbor, are you going to get rich off the sweat of them? No. Through the suffering, it's like James talks about, right? The rich withholding the wages of his laborers. And James says, their cries are coming up to heaven against you. How is this applicable to us? Many of you have seen the signs for the Racino coming to town potentially, right? We have some forms up front. I would encourage you to sign to say, don't bring it. And this is not a political point I'm making. I'm not getting into politics. I'm not getting into politics. What I'm concerned about is not our economic prosperity here, but on the spiritual judgment that will follow if we bring it. More than the economic consequences of a racino are the spiritual consequences of being given over to a debased mind as a society. When we see fit to acknowledge, not to, to acknowledge God in our practices. I want to read that Romans 1. You see, God, when a society of people or an individual of people, you know how God judges now. This is not the final judgment. When we, as individuals or a society, choose not to acknowledge God in all of our ways, what He tells us He'll do is He'll let us do what our wicked hearts want. 
He'll give us over to a debased way of thinking. And the consequences of that are terrifying. Because every other form of sin begins to manifest itself and take over the people. As a perfect example, look at the history of America. Look at where people are at today. Our schools have become a prison. I was talking with some in this church who when they were children, they could bring loaded guns to school and it was no big deal because there was a different heart and a different mindset in society. You bring a gun to school today, you're serving 10 to 20 years. Let me read Romans 1 and I'm going to make some points. Here's what Paul said. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Gambling, by the way, is covetous. Would you agree? What are you hoping to get? Payday. That's, that's what covetousness is. Your idol is money. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That describes America, does it not? We are ruthless. Look at what's happening in Capitol Hill right now. Disobedient to parents. Look at what's happening with our children. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who do practice them. I want to go through these arguments with you, because this is an application for us immediately. The arguments in this case of a racino coming to town is that it will be good for our economy and it will bring jobs to our city, etc., etc. You've heard those arguments. What that ignores immediately is all the evidence that it does not actually benefit any economy. The money doesn't come here, it goes uh, to the tribe who owns the casino, and most people who come to the racino don't live here or spend their money here. It, it's been proven in every town that has these, it doesn't really profit the town. The jobs that are, are brought are filled by people who don't live here. That's not even the point to me. That's just arguing along um, idle lines. If all we care about is our economic prosperity, why don't we bring drug dealers in? Because they can prosper economically. Right? We certainly don't want to prop up drug dealers in their trade for our culture. But gambling is the same sort of addiction, is it not? Destroys families, destroys people. Crime increases when they're brought in, families suffer, addictions increase, drug abuse increases, rapes increases. These are all proven stats. It's not a political argument. Poverty. Those who are in poverty and are most likely to go there are entrenched in poverty at that point. While people seek to get rich off the poor's back. Let's argue it did prosperous. Like I said, we wouldn't want drug dealers here. All that shows is our idol, our care is our economic prosperity. I'll tell you this, church. Not every kind of wealth that you can gain is good. 
certainly none of you would argue that the leaders of these drug cartels are good people when they've slaughtered tens of thousands of their own simply to gain territory to push their drug. Not every kind of wealth that might filter into an economy is the kind of wealth you want. There is a kind of wealth that is wicked no matter how it's gained and it will destroy people. Not only that, there is a kind of wealth that destroys the human soul. And that's what we're seeing happen in America. It doesn't destroy economies. It destroys the soul of people. I would ask for those who would want the Racino to first go visit people who are addicted to gambling and see how these people will spend their money on a bet rather than their poor little child who's starving or needs shoes. And see if you in a clean conscience can say, this is a good thing to bring this in. If we can say yes to that, I am terrified for where we're at as a people. Our conscience, the Bible said, has literally been seared. So there's a kind of wealth that can be gained that will destroy your soul. Here's what the scripture says. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Gambling switches that around. It's more blessed to receive than to give. Blessing is not found in receiving. It's found in giving. It's like the story I told you about. Moving on. Verse 25. Paul and Silas are thrown in prison. We don't know why Luke and Timothy were left alone. But we're told in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to him. This is the first jailhouse rock, if you can say it that way. I love this. This is such a beautiful contrast. I want you to notice this with me. Instead of arguing when they were drugged before the magistrates, what did Paul and Silas do? They remained silent. Instead of asserting their rights, and this is important, I'll pick up in a minute. Instead of their asserting their rights as Roman citizens, they endured the injustice inflicted on them. Instead of striking back, they absorbed the many blows they took And instead of cursing and complaining, they sang hymns. This is such a radical contrast to people who want a good life and want to hold on to their good life. It's not what Paul's aim was here. His aim was to be faithful to God. It's a beautiful, beautiful verse. It's the true heart of one who's resigned his will to walking with the Lord. It's in total contrast to someone who would walk in the flesh. It's the beautiful reality that Christ brings His children into such fellowship with Himself and victory over our flesh that even the worst of circumstances you might find yourself in can be a blessing. Do you believe that? Some here have been afflicted with cancer. Some here some other physical ailment. Maybe you're going through severe trials at work. Do you believe that can be a blessing from the Lord? Because in your heart, you can resist Him. Or you can come to the place where you say, Lord, Your will be done. And find the grace and power to walk through it. I recently read in a biography this week, an old French saint from the 1500s named Francis de Salis, 
had a young sister who died suddenly of an illness. And he rushes home upon finding out about her death to tell his mother. He found his brother had already been there telling her, your daughter has just died. Here's what he wrote of the mother's response. This is so beautiful. He said, my dear mother has drunk the cup with the truest Christian steadfastness. And highly as I've ever prized her goodness, I admire her more now than ever. On Sunday night, she dreamt that Jean was dead. And the next morning before getting up, she asked my brother if it was really true. It is true, mother, was all he could find the courage to say. Her response, listen to this, and God's will be done. Our dear mother exclaimed, and for a while she wept freely. After that, she called her maid saying, I want to get up and go pray to God for my child, which she did. There was never one word of impatience or distrust. A thousand times she blessed God and resigned her will to his. But I never saw calmer grief, plenty of tears, but they were all gentle, loving showers without any bitterness, and yet this was her very dear child. You see how beautiful grief can be when resigned to the will of the Lord? Circumstances might be the Lord's vehicle to bring your will into a good place. Think of Jonah. Tuesday nights at our study, we looked at Jonah. How God, after Jonah wants Nineveh to be judged and he goes outside the city and waits for it to happen, God causes a plant to grow up to shade his head and he's so happy, so content, he's so thankful and then God causes a worm to eat it. God caused the worm to eat his shelter. Now he's suffering under the heat and then you know what the text says? God causes a severe east wind to blow on him and afflict him. Why? Because he wanted to draw out Jonah's wicked, selfish heart. And he would say to Jonah, Jonah, is it not right for me to be merciful to this people? Jonah would say, yes. I'm, I'm justified in my anger that you're merciful. God afflicted him. Why? To draw out that wickedness and expose it. No, Jonah. What a beautiful contrast. And here's what it leads to, the jailer's conversion. This is the true nugget in our passage. Read it with me. So we read at midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns, and the prisoners were listening. They had an audience, verse 26. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. In fact, if they had escaped, that would have been the punishment Rome would have inflicted on him for letting them escape. So he was going to take his own life before that happened. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Notice, it's not just Paul and Silas. All, the jail, all those jailed stayed under the influence of Paul and Silas. Tremendous influence. See how it changes the culture? These men are in prison. Why? Because they're probably bad dudes. And yet, at the very chance to escape, what they do? Escape. That's the reformation of a society. The jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. 
Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. The way you understand it is this offer of believing in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved is for you and for your household. It's not that his faith would save his household. The opportunity for his household to believe is also there. Verse 32, so they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were with him in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. The reformation of a soul. A few hours ago, the jailer would have no problem killing them. And now he's washing their wounds. You see how a heart has changed? He was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. I love this. This sweet sacrifice on the part of Paul and Silas. Paul could have employed his rights as a Roman citizen before he was beaten. You realize that? He said, what you're doing to me as a Roman citizen is unjust. He didn't do that. He didn't plead for his own rights. He let him inflict the blows. He could have fought and resisted being thrown in jail, but he didn't. He could have been embittered by the mistreatment, but he wasn't. He could have ran when the shackles came off because he was innocent, but he didn't. All that enduring sacrifice was so that one jailer and his family would come to salvation. Let me ask you, would you be willing to behave like Paul did for the sake of one? Would you be willing to go to prison so that that one might be saved? In fact, Paul, when he would write his letter to Philippi, said something that probably touched a very sweet nerve with this Roman jailer. He wrote the letter to the Philippians from a Roman prison, a different Roman prison. And he tells them, I want you to know, beloved, the things that I'm enduring have actually led to the furtherance of the gospel. I wonder if when the Philippian jailer read that letter to his church, if he started crying. Paul's at it again. He's willing to go to jail so that the gospel might be furthered. That's how I came to faith. By that man's sacrifice. Can you imagine how that must have touched him? What, hap- what would happen if we as a church would, s- would live like this for others? Would you allow yourself to be mistreated instead of asserting your rights as an American? It's this kind of radical living that truly changes the world. And it did. This is so beautiful. The sweet dropper. The old Puritans had a name for God called the sweet dropper. They saw these kind of circumstances as God's sweet droppings to them. They didn't resist it. They saw, they saw an adversity and affliction, God's sweetness. Why? Because God causes the desert to bloom out of such things. He causes the dead to live out of such things. It's a radical different way of thinking, but it's true with Christ. Do you get frustrated with adverse circumstances? And think about this. Do you tend to resist, even if only inwardly in your heart, when unwanted things happen? 
So often, adverse circumstances are the sweet dropper's blessing in the skies. I saw a documentary on Rett syndrome, which is a neurological disorder in people, affects mostly girls, of one family whose beautiful little girl was affected by it. She got to about a year and a half old. She said one word her whole life, mom. She said it one time, and she stopped talking ever since. She's not said a word since. Her mother's only heard her daughter say mom once in her life. You know what? She quotes a doctor of hers about this disorder in her child. The doctor told her stellar spirits are often housed in imperfect bodies. The gift of such a body can actually strengthen a family as parents and siblings willingly build their lives around the child with special needs. You see the mom's outlook? She saw this child with all these hardships and needs as a blessing. Why? Because it teaches our family how to truly be human. <clears throat> to not live for myself. <clears throat> it teaches me that the blessing is in serving this one in need. You see the radical change there? What's our society do? Oh, your baby might have Down syndrome? Kill it. Get rid of it. You don't want that kind of hindrance in your life when God might be giving you that child to reform you and bring you into a deeper understanding of what it's like to be human in love. Beautiful. That's how beautiful this is. The sweet dropper. God gives us these blessings. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 6-10, You know what? I had a thorn in the flesh given to me, and I prayed to God to remove it for three, three different times. I prayed to remove it. He wouldn't. Why? Because I needed to be taught a lesson that grace and power are perfected in my weakness. And he would go on to say, Therefore, I will gladly be content with hardships, with sufferings, with persecutions, with trials. Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Could we as a church come to the place truly where we say, I'll gladly be content with this, Lord? Because that will be the means by which your grace and power is secured in my life. That's the reality of the Christian life. It's there for you. I want to read some quotes for you. We'll end shortly here. Thomas Watson, one of those old Puritans I referenced, said this, The godly have some good in them, therefore the devil afflicts them. And some evil in them, therefore God afflicts them. I love that quote. And if you've ever read Thomas Watson, that's just how he is. He's just kind of quirky, I think. But I love it. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, who was a slave trader, wrote, God's people have no assurances that the dark experience of life will be held at bay much less that God will provide some sort of running commentary on the meaning of each day's allotment of confusion, boredom, pain, or achievement. What he's saying there is, when we pray, God, why are you letting this happen? Don't expect an answer necessarily. He might not give you a commentary on why he's allowing it. The important thing, he says, no great matter, this is no great matter where we are, provided we see that the Lord has placed us there and that he's with us. That was the attitude of Paul and Silas. God, I'm, I'm in a Philippian jail. I'm not quite sure how I got here. I'm going to sing praise to you because I trust you brought me here. Oh, you wanted me to witness to the jailer? Cool. 
John of the Cross said this, See that you are not suddenly saddened by the adversities of this world. For you do not know the good they bring, being ordained at the judgments of God for the everlasting joy of the elect. It's a beautiful quote. The good that they bring. So often we only see the bad because we're thinking of ourselves. God, this is not what I want right now. This is not my plan. But what good might they do to others? Christ certainly didn't come for his own goodness. He came that he might redeem us. And it cost him dearly. Let's finish the passage and then I'm going to read another poem by John Newton. Verse 35, but when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported those words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. These magistrates are much like our politicians today, are they not? When Paul and Silas were drugged before them, they gave their willful consent. Beat them with rods, tear their garments off. They didn't care about Paul and Silas or their potential rights. They were following the mob rule. No consideration of what's right and wrong, just like our politicians. And when they found out they were Roman citizens, they were afraid and tried to hide it. They took them out secretly, just like our politicians. When exposed, what do they do? They hide. When the mob's in favor of what they're doing, they do it openly and freely. Human nature hasn't changed at all, has it? <laughs> Not one bit. Those who hate righteousness will always publicly make political, economical, or even social sport out of those who do love righteousness. And when their injustices are found out, they will always try to hide them. The reason Paul made them publicly come, let him out, was so that the townspeople of Philippi would know that he and the other followers of Christ were not doing anything illegal. This was a brand new church. And if he were to all of a sudden disappear, that church would always be under suspicion by the people. He also made them come publicly because they were punished unjustly. Paul didn't even bring up the issue until they wanted to hide it. Isn't that interesting? When they wanted to further their wickedness, that's when Paul said, no, I'm going to call you out and expose you because what you did was wrong and you're trying to hide it now. They were published un punished unjustly. So Paul upheld the righteous standing of that newfound church at Philippi in his actions. What a bold man. What a wise man Paul was. I love it. I want to read this lengthy poem to you. In fact, the worship team can go ahead and come on up. John Newton, again, wrote this. He wrote a poem... And it was God's answer to prayer for grace and strength 
This will be several slides. I couldn't fit it all on just a few. He said this, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. It was He who taught me thus to pray, and He, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once He'd answer my requests, and by His love's constraining power, subdue my sin and give me rest. He's praying for deliverance. Instead of this, He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yes, more with his own hand, it seemed intent to aggravate my woe. He crossed all the fair designs I'd schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will you pursue this worm to death? This is the way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and strength. The true challenge for us as Christians is not the event or persecution or affliction that you're enduring. enduring. The true challenge for us is to come to a place where you say, Lord, I willingly endure it. The Lord always wrestles with our hearts and our will because that's where we find rest. When we say, your will be done, Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this lesson. I thank you how beautiful a passage it was. Lord, we know the teachings that we will be persecuted for our faith, for truth. Father, the real beauty of that is the willing sufferer, just as our Lord was. As Hebrews says, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. He willingly came He willingly set aside His glory and the comforts of heaven, the fellowship with His Father. He willingly endured the hatred, ridicule, blasphemies of men that He might save some. And He willingly gives us the reward of His victory. He joyfully showers us with every spiritual blessing we might know His goodness and grace. And yet the ways He does it in this world sometimes are only found when we conform to His death before we conform to His life. Thank You for these truths, Lord. It's a beautiful truth. I pray our church begins the process of transforming into this image. In Christ's name we pray.